The Apostle Peter took a trip to the city of Antioch, where Paul was already ministering. And when Peter got to Antioch, it was a really incredible picture. At Antioch, you had the apostles and other Jewish converts to Christianity, and then you also had a group of people who were Gentile converts to Christianity. And these two groups of people who were so different and came from such varied backgrounds came together and they were worshiping together, they were caring for each other, they were spending time together, and they were even eating together, which was a really big deal for these two cultures. And Peter was right there in the midst of it. Peter was eating with the Gentile Christians. He had abandoned the dietary laws and regulations that were part of that old Jewish lifestyle that he was saved out of. And everything was good. Until some men from the church at Jerusalem also came to visit Antioch. The church at Jerusalem in the early church life was a really important and profound church. It was kind of the hub of Christianity. And so it had a lot of influence over the other churches and other Christians. And so when people from Jerusalem came, everyone took notice. And this particular group of people from the Jerusalem church believed that in order to be a Christian, you had to carry with you all of the Jewish ritualistic and ceremonial laws, including the dietary laws. And so when they show up, and Peter had been eating with these Gentile Christians, all of a sudden he became very self-aware. He realized that the people who came from Jerusalem probably weren't going to approve of the fact that he was eating with Gentile Christians like a Gentile Christian. And so the freedom that Peter had to do this and spend time with these Christians, he gave up. And in Galatians 2, Paul says that he withdrew from the Gentile Christians and started eating only with the Jewish Christians. And it didn't just stop with Peter, because Peter was a big deal. And when the other Jewish Christians saw that Peter was doing this, they also withdrew away from the Gentile Christians and started eating only with the Jewish Christians. And even Barnabas, even one of Paul's closest traveling companions and ministry friends, someone that is called the encourager, withdrew from the Gentile Christians and started eating only with the Jewish Christians. And all of a sudden, a divide had formed in the life of the church at Antioch where there was supposed to be no divide at all. Peter was free. He knew that his faith in Jesus Christ had set him free and brought him into a new relationship with God. And it was an incredible, beautiful thing. And yet he chose in this moment, instead of remaining free and living as Christ had called him to live, to take that freedom and use it for his own selfish gain so that these men from Jerusalem would think he's authentic, so that they would think he's the real deal, so that they wouldn't think anything negative about him. He was willing to take that freedom and misuse it, and the repercussions from that were intense. Paul tells this story in Galatians 2. And it ends with Paul getting in Peter's face in the middle of all that's going on and correcting Peter in front of all of the people. But Paul tells that story in Galatians 2 because the same thing that happened in Antioch was now happening in the city of Galatia. These people were coming in and trying to take the freedom away from the church at Galatia and say, no, it's not enough to just have Jesus. You have to have Jesus plus the circumcision and plus the dietary laws. You have to have more. 
And Paul is warning the people through this story. It happened here. A divide happened at Antioch, and, and I had to step in because of how damaging it was. And if you're not careful, it's going to happen here as well. Paul was very concerned that they were going to give up their freedom in Christ and exchange it for something inferior. Last week, we started looking at this passage in Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to go all the way through the chapter over the next several weeks. But these first two weeks are an introduction to freedom, because it's something that we don't talk about probably as much as we should in the Christian world. And last week, we began by looking at freedom conceptually at the idea of freedom and what freedom is when it comes to our freedom in Christ. And we saw that freedom, for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, is free. That it's of no charge to us, that it doesn't cost us anything, that Jesus paid that debt in full so that we could be free. But we also saw that it's very easy to forget. That freedom is something that because it can be such a vague idea in our minds, that we often forget that we're free. And we trade our freedom in just like Peter for something inferior and something that keeps us from walking with Christ the way that we should. But ultimately we saw that freedom is precious. And that there is nothing that we have as Christians more valuable than the freedom that Christ gave us. Because it not only changes who we are, it changes how we live and it changes our eternity. It's an incredibly important aspect of our walk with Jesus and something that should be protected. Something that should be defended. Something that we should hold deeply close to our hearts. Today we're going to move in a little more of a practical direction. And we're going to look at freedom not simply as an idea to be admired, but as an actual gift that God gives us that's meant to be utilized in our lives, that's meant to be put to work, and it's meant to be used well. And so we're going to look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 through 15. Paul said this, For you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, speak to us this morning. Remind us not only of how valuable our freedom is, but how important it is that we use it well for your glory and the good of our neighbors. We just thank you and we praise you that freedom is a reality for anyone who's put their faith in you through Christ. But we just need a little help to know how to live as people who have been set free. So guide us and teach us and lead us as we look at your word this morning. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to look at two practical ideas about freedom this morning and how we should use it. The first thing that we see in this passage is that freedom must be used well. Freedom must be used and it must be used well. The story of Ruth in the Old Testament is an incredibly beautiful story, but it's a unique book. In Ruth, we don't see God as prevalent, at least it appears that way, as we do in some of the other books. 
So we just got through looking at Joshua, and God is a driving character through the the entire story. That he's present and active and moving in everything that we see, that it's very obvious. But in Ruth, it doesn't come across quite that obvious. We don't see God directly interacting with the people that are involved in the book of Ruth. And yet, what's so profound about Ruth is we still see God's grace and his mercy through the entire story. And just like every other passage in the Old Testament, Ruth points us to Jesus. And it does that through two of the people that were the most prominent in the story. The first was a young woman named Ruth. And Ruth lost her husband and her father-in-law about the same time. And that made both Ruth and her mother-in-law widows. During this time period, being a widow was one of the most vulnerable positions you could find yourself in. Because more often than not, the women didn't work, the women didn't have an education, and the women didn't own property. And so if you were a woman and you were married during this time and your husband died, then you didn't get what was left over. All of that was gone, and you had no education, you had no means to work for anything more, and you were in a lot of trouble. And Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, knew this. And she understood that she was a little older and and life was going to be a little shorter for her. But Ruth had everything in front of her. And so she went to Ruth and said, listen, you're young, you're beautiful, you you can find a new husband and you don't have to live the rest of your life as a widow. Just, just go. You're free. You don't have an obligation to me anymore. Just go make a new life for yourself and use this freedom for your own good. But Ruth said no. She said, I may be free, but wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever you stay is wherever I'm going to stay. I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to use my freedom for your good, and I'm going to be here with you to take care of you and to love you. And that's exactly what she did. So Ruth followed Naomi back to her hometown, and Ruth started gleaning in the fields. And this practice of gleaning in a field was an act of charity for these landowners for the widows. And so the workers would go through the fields and they would collect as much of the grain as they could, but naturally some of that grain was going to fall by the side. It would fall off their carts, they, wouldn't, they would miss some of it and not pluck it from the ground. And so in a way to take care of widows, they would allow the widows to come into these fields and they would collect the grain that was left over and they were able to use that to make bread and to make food. And so Ruth was out gleaning in the field for herself and for her mother-in-law Naomi And one of the field owners, a man named Boaz, noticed her. And he pulled one of the workers aside and he said, Who is this woman out gleaning in the field? And the worker told him the story of how Ruth followed her mother-in-law Naomi and was taking care of her mother-in-law and was using her freedom for the good of her family. And Boaz was struck by that. And he calls Ruth in and he feeds her this incredible meal where she's able to eat more than she possibly could and have some left over. And he says, don't worry about these other fields. You just glean from my field, and I'll make sure that you and your mother-in-law have everything that you need. And so she leaves, and he pulls a worker aside. He says, listen, I want you to leave extra. I want you to make sure that enough falls off your cart to where Ruth and her mother-in-law have more than they could ever need. It's a picture of grace. But there's a really important part of that story. 
Because if Ruth would have gone out into the field and realized that so much more grain had been left over, and if she would have admired it and thought it was incredible, that would be a good thing. But if she looked at all the grain and said, isn't that nice, and then walked away, that act of grace and mercy would have no real meaning in her life. The fact that it belonged to her had no benefit to her until she picked up the grain. And we see that as a constant theme throughout Scripture. That God often freely gives his grace to his people and gives us more than we could ever imagine and more than we could ever want and ever desire. But there's still an element of human responsibility where we have to pick up the grain. Where we have to do something with the gift that God has given to us. Some time ago we looked through Paul's description of the armor of God. And he talks about all this incredible equipment that God gives us to be able to walk through life the way that we're called to walk through life. Things like a belt of truth and a breastplate of righteousness and a shield of faith and a sword that's the spirit and the word of God. And all of those things are given to us freely. God gives us everything that we could possibly need to go through this life and honor him in everything that we do. But Paul knew that the temptation would be there for us to see that good gift that God has given us and leave it on the shelf. And so Paul said things like, put on the belt of truth and take up the shield of faith, and take up the sword of the Spirit. You have to put it on day after day after day. God gives us the gift And then we have to utilize it. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are free. And nothing can take that freedom away. That God has left that grain on the floor and it belongs to us. But that freedom has to be used each and every day in our lives. And it has to be used well. Verse 13, Paul says, For you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh But through love, serve one another. Freedom isn't just a gift, as we saw last week. Freedom is a calling. Freedom should be a pursuit in each and every one of our lives. And we have to use it, and we have to use it well. And we can think, if we just leave freedom on the shelf, then we might just be missing out on a good feeling, or we'll forget how great it is that we're saved by grace. But freedom is more than just a feeling. It's more than an idea. And neglecting to use that freedom well will have a radical impact on the way that we live and the way that we follow after Jesus. Last week, we looked at two enemies of freedom. On one side, you have legalism. And legalism is what the church in Galatia and what the church at Antioch was dealing with. This idea that Jesus isn't enough for your salvation, but you have to have something more. You have to follow this certain set of rules. You have to do these certain set of ordinances. You have to look a certain way or come from a certain place to be a follower of Jesus. And a lot of us default back to legalism because we feel like because God has paid our debt through Jesus that now we have to pay Jesus back and that we have to do all of these things to earn God's love and earn God's favor. And legalism can have a devastating impact on the way that we follow God. Because on one hand, it just makes you tired. If you're putting all this extra weight and all this extra baggage on yourself and on your walk with Christ, there's no way that you won't burn out and that you won't be exhausted because nobody can carry that kind of load. That's why Jesus did it for us. But it also makes us bitter. 
Because it can be easy when you're a legalistic kind of person to look around and compare yourself to the people in your midst and say, man, I am a really good person. I am a really good Christian. All these things that Jesus commands of me, I do it, and I've even added some of my own rules. And I follow Jesus on a level that nobody else could imagine. And then you look around and you see people who don't do it as well as you do, and you start to think, what's the deal, God? I am doing all of this extra work for you, and these people get all the same benefits? These people get the same eternity. These people get the same relationship with you. Some of these people are prospering more than I am. That's not fair. It's that older brother mentality that we looked at a couple weeks ago at the end of Joshua when the older brother in the story of the prodigal son was so angry that the father would dare throw a party for his rebellious sibling. And that mixture of tiredness and bitterness makes us incapable of pursuing Christ the way that we want to. Because some days we're tired and some days we're angry. But whether we're tired or angry, we don't want to pursue Jesus. On the other side is licentiousness. Licentiousness, we looked at last week, is the idea of having a blank credit card. That because of God's grace and because of God's mercy, all of our sins have been wiped away and there's no condemnation for our sins, so we can do whatever we want. We don't have to answer to God. We don't have to answer to anybody. And so we can sin as freely as we want. We don't have to spend time with Christ. We don't have to love other people. We can be as self-absorbed and self-focused as we desire. And it's all good. But just like legalism takes a toll, so does licentiousness. Because on one hand, licentiousness gives us this false idea of independence. That we don't need God because he's done this one-time act of salvation and set us free. And so now we don't have anything to worry about. But then what happens, as we saw with the story of the prodigal son who lived in licentiousness, as you live that way and as things go along, you realize that you're not as independent as you think you are. And if you've been saved by the grace and mercy of God, then the Holy Spirit lives within you. And he is a counselor and he is a comforter, but he is also a convictor. And he reminds us when we're not following Christ the way that we should. And when we're running in independence and trying to run away from God, that conviction can slowly start to turn into our minds into condemnation. And those enemies of guilt and shame that Jesus died to forgive us from start to creep back in and grab us by the neck and pull us backwards away from our walk with Christ. And so just like legalism keeps us from Jesus, so does his licentiousness. Because we might not be tired and bitter, but now we're beaten down and guilty and full of shame. And it keeps us from pursuing Jesus the way that we should. When we fail to put our freedom into practice, we start doing Christianity the hard way. Not that Christianity is ever easy. Not that following Jesus is ever easy, but we add so much more weight and so much more difficulty to something that is supposed to be a joyful endeavor in our life of chasing after Christ. Paul used that language of running well. He asked the question in verse 7 to the Galatian church, You are running so well, who hindered you? from obeying the truth. And Jesus has given us this way through his grace and mercy to chase after him, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we can come boldly before the throne of grace, and yet we neglect that and put all of these hurdles and all of these roadblocks in our way. 
And what we find is that it is much more difficult to follow Jesus if on one side we feel like we have to clean everything up before we come to him, or on the other side we feel like we're too dirty to enter into his presence. And in the life of a Christian, neither one of those things is ever true. You don't have to clean yourself up to come into the presence of God. As followers of Jesus, we come into his presence and then he does the work. He cleans us up. He shapes us. And every day of our life, as we draw closer to him, he makes us more and more like him. There's no point in your life where you're ever too dirty or ever too sinful to come into the presence of God because what Jesus did on the cross is far greater than anything you can do in your daily life. And so we don't have those restrictions. But when we substitute our freedom for legalism or licentiousness, we start to really feel that way. We were called to freedom, and so we have to daily choose to live in it. And that means that we have to remember. To fight legalism, we have to remember that Jesus has paid your debt. That you don't owe God anything more because your debt has been paid in full. And so you don't have to pay Jesus anything back because he gave you that gift of grace freely on your behalf and paid it in full. The only thing that we owe back to God is our freedom and our worship. And we don't do that out of obligation, but we do it out of love and out of thanksgiving. And so we have to remember that when Christ died on the cross, that offering of to, to sin and to death and ultimately to God is a once and for all offering. That Jesus died once and for all to take the sins of those who put their faith in him in and on himself once and for all. That Jesus took your debt on his shoulders once and for all and nothing more has to be paid. And so you don't have to resort back to that legalism that holds us in captivity. To fight against licentiousness, we have to remember the cost that Jesus paid to set us free. The cost that Jesus took on himself to forgive us of our sins. Because it's so easy to start to look around at the sins that take over our lives and think, you know what? That was pretty good. You know what? I enjoyed that. You know what? That life might have been better when I was living this way and not living for Christ. And those sins can become very appealing and sometimes even very beautiful. But when we remember what Jesus paid to deliver us from those sins, The fact that Jesus was beaten and mocked and humiliated and stripped naked and put on a cross and suffered and died in one of the most horrific ways possible, that reminds us how ugly and awful our sin really is. And so when we start to fall back into that licentiousness thinking, I'm saved by grace so it doesn't matter what I do, sin was so dangerous and so polluting in our lives that God became man and took on our sin on his body and died and was buried so that we didn't have to surrender to it anymore. We have to remember, freedom is not a distant idea, but it's a present reality in the life of anyone who's put their faith in Christ. And it's a gift, a gift for followers of Jesus that we're called to put into practice daily. Jesus died to give you freedom. Please don't leave it for a cheap substitute. If you're in Christ, remember the cost of your freedom. 
Remember how precious and beautiful it is and how in light of that freedom that we have in Christ, that legalism and law and that licentiousness and rebellion become so dim by comparison because there really is nothing that compares. And let's put it, to light, put it to work in our lives day after day after day and use it well. So freedom must be used well. And the next thing that sounds a little bit contradictory to what we just talked about. Freedom must be given up. Freedom must be given up. I imagine this has been a problem throughout human history. But I've only lived now. So I can only speak for what I see mostly happening in our present society in 21st century America now. We are an incredibly individualistic group of people. Even in a world dominated by social media and social networks, we have this feeling somewhere deep inside of us that teaches us that we are individuals and all that we have is all that we are and that only matters for me and what I do messes with me or it helps me and what you do messes with you or helps you, but there's not a lot of impact that goes beyond ourselves. We believe that our range of reach is not very broad and that oftentimes what we do doesn't affect anybody else. But in the first century, the church at Antioch learned a very different story. Because the way Peter used his freedom negatively, the way that Peter used his freedom, as Paul says, for the flesh and his selfish desire affected so many people. These other Jewish Christians who looked to Peter as an example who were devoted to his teaching, like Acts chapter 2 says, saw him abandon the way that God called him to use his freedom and start causing division in the church and to pursue after something other than Christ more than he was pursuing Christ. And so they saw that and they followed. Again, even Barnabas saw that and he followed. Paul called it hypocrisy and they were all living there. But then it also affected the Gentile Christians They didn't have those dietary laws. And so now all of a sudden they were looking at Peter, this apostle, and Barnabas, this leader in the church, and all the other Jewish Christians. They had separated themselves away from these Gentile Christians, and they had to have felt less than. They had to have looked around and thought, what's wrong with us? There's something missing in our walk with Christ that we are not as good as they are. And when Drew was talking about the confession of sin, that reminder that we all come in here on equal footing, they didn't believe that anymore. There was a separation in the church where one group of Christians felt like they were superior to the others and the other group felt inferior and it caused division. Paul understood that for people that have been set free, there's a temptation towards selfishness. There's a temptation to use that freedom to glorify ourselves. And because of that, he presents the dangers that can come. He says, you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for flesh or for selfishness. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul says that there's one Christ. And so because of that, there's one 
body. There's one bread that we all partake in, that if we're in Jesus, that we are one. And because of that, we share in one freedom. One of the most dangerous things that American Christianity has taught us is that we are saved into a personal relationship with Jesus. Because what that implies, even though people probably don't think about it when we talk about it that way, one of the things that that implies is that our relationship with Jesus is personal. That it doesn't have any impact or effect on anyone else outside of our relationship with Christ. And so we believe when we come together as a church, whether it's a church of 30 or 30,000, we think that we're just individuals sitting in a room who all happen to have a common goal. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus, a personal God, comes to each and every one of us personally and saves us personally by his grace and by his mercy, but he doesn't save us to be alone. He saves us into something bigger than ourselves. He saves us into a corporate relationship with him. We're called the bride of Christ. Many people, but one bride. We're all in this together. And if you've ever injured yourself, when Paul talks about the church being a body, he means it. Because if you've injured part of your body, then it affects the rest. I remember when I was in sixth grade, I broke my thumb climbing over a fence. It was a bad story. We, went, we were in a pool, and we got out of the pool and then climbed a fence, which is not a good idea, in case you were thinking about doing that this afternoon. So I'm soaking wet, climb a fence, slide down. My thumb gets caught in the little curly thing at the top and just... <laughs> It was really unpleasant. And I had a cast that covered from my thumb to about my elbow. And it was amazing that about 60% of the things that I could do fairly well all of a sudden were taken away. Just because my one thumb was in a cast, all of a sudden I couldn't write, I couldn't throw a ball, I couldn't ride my bike. All of these things that I was so used to being able to do, I now couldn't do. And it's not that the rest of my body could do these things, because, but my thumb just took a day off. My whole body was incapable of doing things that I was so naturally used to doing. When you injure one part of your body, the rest of the body feels it. And when it comes to the church, how one part of the body of Christ uses its freedom will echo through the rest. And with that in mind, Paul tells these Christians in Galatia, tells us as well, To do something strange. He says to take our freedom, that precious freedom that Paul values so dearly, and to give it away. In verse 13, he says, don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And the concept of freedom and service don't really seem to go hand in hand. To think about freedom, I think about the fact that I don't have to serve anybody. That I don't have to pay attention to anybody. That all I have to worry about is me and my freedom. But Paul is calling us to do what Ruth did. To say, I may be free, but I'm going to take that freedom and I'm going to use it for the good of others. And what Paul is calling us to do here is one of the most Christ-like things that any human being could ever do. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. John says that in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. That Jesus was present in the beginning and that he is God. He says that all things were created. Paul says all things were created through him and by him and for him. That Jesus is the God that we worship. 
And as God, as an all-powerful creator God, Jesus has for all of eternity had a level of freedom that we could never imagine. Because with that kind of freedom, being the creator of it all, with that kind of power comes a freedom that we could never even fathom. And yet Paul says that even though he, he was equal to God, even though he was in the very nature of God, he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. Even though he was completely and totally and wholly free, Jesus took that freedom and gave it down, humbling himself, emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus took all of the freedom and the privilege that comes with being the God who created the universe and he left it behind and took the form of a servant to come and to serve us. To come and to bring salvation into the world by offering his freedom for ours. We exercise our freedom by giving it up to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says here that we basically trade one law for another. A broken and weak law for a perfect law because he says the whole law that we're called to follow is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourselves. The freedom that Christ gives us sets us free to joyfully serve one another. To love our neighbors as ourselves and to care for those who are in our presence. And if we view ourselves as individuals with individual, untouchable freedom, the church is a place that is ripe for division. If we come into the church, whether it's here at Redeeming Grace or any other church, or in just any time that we come together with other Christians, if we come into that thinking that my individual rights and individual freedoms are off limits and nobody can touch them, what starts to happen, and I've seen it happen, is little factions begin to arise in the church like the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians, like the men from James that came in and wanted their way to be the way, and they started leading people in, and the church was broken, and the church was divided, and the church was split, and the church could no longer be the church until that was corrected. But if we see ourselves as a family, if we see ourselves as the bride of Christ, if we see ourselves as a body, and we spend our time loving one another as Christ loves us and laying down our pride, laying down our rights, and laying down our freedoms for one another. It's a beautiful thing. And it's something unlike anything else in the world could ever offer to anyone. We are called to be free. And that means that we are free to love our neighbors as ourselves. That we're free to love and to serve the people that God has placed in our lives. And as we do that, know that those other Christians in our lives are free to love and to serve us and to love and serve other people as well. And it's incredible. But that means that we have to look for opportunities to serve one another. That means that it's my job, not as a pastor, but as a Christian, to look at the people in my life, to look at my brothers and sisters in Christ and say, how can I love you? How can I serve you? How can I take my freedom that God has given me and lay it down in order to do good for you? That means it's my responsibility as a Christian to pay attention, 
to know the people that I'm around, to know the people in my church, and to be aware when they're hurting, to be aware when they're in need, to be aware when I can love them by serving them. And that's the call for each and every one of us, that we have to start by loving one another, and then we have to let that love translate into service, just like Jesus did for us. If Peter's misuse of freedom impacted that church in such an incredible way, imagine the impact it could have if we as members of this church decided to use our freedom well by giving it up for others. And I think we do that well. I know we're small and I know it's an intimate kind of thing, but I feel like we do that well. But there's no limit on how well we can do that. There is never a good enough when it comes to loving and serving one another. Our example is Christ, and we can never outgive, we can never outlove, we can never outserve Jesus. And so, what do you think could happen if all of us carried that mentality that I'm going to take my freedom daily and lay it down for my brothers and sisters in Christ and love them and serve them? It would be amazing. But this isn't just for inside the church. This call to love and service isn't just for Christians to give to other Christians, but we're called to have the same heart for those who are outside of the church. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19, Paul begins by saying, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessing. Paul understood Christian freedom maybe better than anyone else who's ever lived. Paul valued his Christian freedom so deeply, even to the point that we saw last week that he said when somebody's coming in to take the freedom away from followers of Christ, he wishes that they would harm themselves instead of doing what they were doing. That's how much Paul loved freedom. And yet Paul was willing to lay it all down for the chance to see somebody come to faith in Christ. He said, if there's a Jewish person in my midst and they need the grace and mercy of Jesus, then I'll become like them. If they're eating at a table and they're eating with the dietary laws, then sure, I'll follow those dietary laws so I can sit at that table and tell them about Jesus. If there's somebody around me who's a Gentile who needs the grace and mercy of God, then I'm going to go to them like a Gentile. I'm not going to go to them with the dietary laws. I'm not going to go to them as somebody who's under the law, but I'm going to go to them like they are. I'm not going to sin. I'm going to be under the law of Christ, but I'm going to do whatever it takes to reach them with the gospel. And then maybe the most profound thing he says is, to the weak, I became weak. Paul was a strong man. Paul endured things that we couldn't imagine. Paul was well-educated. Paul knew not only the Jewish law, but now Paul knew the gospel on a deep and a powerful level. He was strong. 
But he said, if there's somebody weak in my presence, then I'm going to lay all of that down. Because even though I am free to everything, I make myself a servant to everyone. So that by all means, if any chance is possible, that I might save some. That's an example that we have to follow. And that means we have to ask ourselves hard questions. We have to ask ourselves, am I clinging on to my freedom? Am I clinging on to my comfort? Am I clinging on to the things that I like about how I am living so tightly that I've become unwilling to lay those things down to love and serve someone who needs the gospel? Are there things in my life, even good things, that I consider so much more valuable than sharing the gospel with someone that I will hold on tightly to those and let an opportunity to share my faith pass away? And if that's true about each and any any one of us in this room today, shame on us. Because our greatest calling is to take the gospel, to take the light into the dark and broken places in this world. And sometimes that means that you have to lay something down to do it. There's no greater way to share Christ with someone than to show them. To count their need for the gospel as greater than your desires, as greater than your pride, as greater than your freedom. To lay all of that down in order to serve them through love and tell them about how Jesus did that for us and more. It's an important part of our walk with Christ that we tell people about our faith. It's much more important and much more effective that we both tell people about the grace and mercy of Jesus and then show them. That we're able to say, this is what Christ did for me. That he gave himself up and became a servant and died on the cross to bring me freedom. That he gave up his freedom so that I could have mine. And now let me show you what that looks like. Because I've been set free, but for your sake, I'm laying all of that behind to love you and serve you. Whatever that means so that you can hear the gospel and so that you can experience the gospel as well. You have been given freedom if you're a follower of Christ so that you can lay it down. If you're wanting a clear, practical way to begin using your freedom well, because again, this can be such a big concept, and I've worried even the past two weeks about being able to communicate well not only the idea of freedom but the practicality of it. And so if you're looking for a clear, practical way to use your freedom and to begin with it, then start here. Love your neighbor as yourself. And out of that love, serve your neighbors. Serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. Serve people outside of the church and do it with joy. Not out of obligation and not out of force, but because we realize that Christ has done that for us and set us free so that we can do that. And so serve them with joy. Serve them freely. Serve them with thanksgiving in your hearts because Christ has set you free. Because you were called to freedom, my brothers and sisters. So don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself.